You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secure Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlock your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. I'm so glad that you've decided to tune in today. Join us on Her Money. Our Her Money family knows that sometimes we do episodes that are especially crafted for a specific set of listeners. And of course, we always try to make sure that every show has some great little nuggets and takeaways for everyone. But the truth is, We love getting granular. Episode 197 was all about living child-free. Episode 263 detailed the best investing practices for moms. Episode 157 focused on specific concerns that the LGBTQ community has around managing their money. And episode 231 detailed how black women can get a seat at the table. The list goes on. We would love it if you would take a dive through our archive and let us know what spoke to you most and what you'd like to see in the future. But today we're going to talk to all the single ladies out there, single ladies of all ages, at all income levels, in all areas of the country, because you know what? You are so very overdue for your own episode. Today, the population of single women in the United States, including widows, divorcees, and women who never married is 60 million, 60 million. And while we have buying power, influence, careers, friends, family, and vibrant lives, there are a lot of cases where single women are just ignored. And as a result, they often get left behind financially speaking. In 2020, single women earned an average annual salary of around $35,000 compared to nearly 49000 for single men. In other words, just to contextualize that, single men earn about one-third more 
than single women, which blows the average gender wage gap, which is already awful, as you know, right out of the water. On top of all of this, single women also have higher annual expenditures because they are doing it all. One of those expenditures is housing. Single women's housing costs eat up nearly 48% of their total annual income after taxes. And ideally, nobody should be spending more than 30%. And believe me, I could go on. But instead, I am gonna let our guests take it away and get real about some solutions. I am so thrilled to be joined by Jill Gianola, author of the new book, Single Women and Money, which she co-wrote with Margaret Price, a journalist. Jill is a teacher and a financial planner, and their book shows how unpartnered women can manage their finances for both the long and the short term. It shows how we can work toward a place where women can achieve all of our goals without feeling the need to marry in order to obtain the life that we want. Jill, welcome. It's so nice to see you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tell me a little bit more about this book and what was inspiring to you about the scenarios that single women face. Yes, I think Margaret and I came to it from different angles. Margaret is a journalist and I as a financial planner, but we had the same idea that single women are pretty much neglected and overlooked in society. And they have it tough because they have the disadvantages that women have, earning less than men on average, living longer. And they have kind of the double whammy that they're trying to do it on their own on one salary. And we noticed that they have a tougher time achieving financial security, and it actually gets worse as they get older and more isolated. Can you explain that in numeric terms to me? I mean, I'm sort of wondering, as we look at single women over the long haul, how does this earning less, having to spend more scenario impact them throughout their lives? Yes, I think one really good uh, metric is Social Security, which, you know, back in the day, Social Security was supposed to be one leg in the three-legged stool that was to support you in, in retirement, but it has become increasingly important. And the goal is that Social Security should really supply about 40% of your retirement income. And for single women, over half rely on Social Security for 90% or more of their retirement income. So something that was supposed to be just a part of their retirement is their entire retirement. Wow, 90%. That's pretty daunting. Is this something that's fixable? I think it is. I think it takes a lot of effort by a lot of different groups. We need to reform, in my opinion, some of our tax laws. Social Security, more attention to the gender gap, those would all help single women. Unfortunately, this is a plight that I think society has generally overlooked for a very long time. Why do you think that is? And do you see it changing? I think one of the main reasons it's been overlooked is that there's a perception that if you are a single woman, it's a temporary situation. You are eventually going to solve the problem yourself because you're going to find a partner to share your life with and make your life easier financially. But that's not the case for more than 60 million 
single women in America. So I think the change is going to be slow. I think more and more as millennials and some of the younger women are saying, no, we're single, we're staying single, we're not searching for our Prince Charming, perceptions will change. I, I, I hope so. And I hope they change pretty quickly. I'm a big fan of controlling the things that we can control. And societal change, although I think we can help it along, is not necessarily one of those things. But we can, as single women, control our own personal economies. We can try to earn more. We can try to use our resources more wisely. We can think about the different challenges that singles face that people who are partnered don't necessarily face. So what are those issues? What are the specific issues that separate widows, divorcees, women who never married from women who do have partners? Yes, and I think that's such a good point about controlling the things we can control. That's one of the main reasons we wrote the book was to show how difficult the situation of many single women is, but at the same time saying, but here's what you can do to make your life better. It isn't just throw up your hands and say, I won't be able to achieve my goals. That's all there is to it. You can, and there are specific things you can do. Widows and divorcees, I think, often have a bit of an advantage because they were working with somebody to build a life. And often they have more experience than in finances. They understand it a little better. And frankly, they get part of the nest egg that was built as a joint couple. Whereas women who have never married are doing it all on their own. And so when it comes time to file for Social Security, for example, they don't have the option of filing on their former or deceased husband's benefits, which is also often a boon. It's all on their own shoulders. If they get it, it's because they earned it. We've got listeners who range in ages, starting in their 20s, going all the way up to their 70s. We know it because they send us letters and they tell us what's going on in their lives in great detail. And they expect us to get tactical for them. And so that's what I want to do. I want to talk about specific age groups. What are the things that you should be putting on your list? What are the things that you should actually be thinking about in order to build a financial life for your future? And let's just assume that you stay single. For the purposes of this conversation, let's just assume we are staying single. So let's start with those youngest women. If you're a woman in your 20s, you're in your first job, you're probably not earning a whole hell of a lot. What do you do to lay the foundation? I think the first thing you need to do is to take a look at your cash flow, what's coming in, what's going out, and making sure that those make sense. We have seen statistics that single women, particularly younger single women, tend to spend more than they make. It's a reality. They may not be earning much. They may be saddled with student loans. But for whatever reason, the outflow is greater than the inflow. And that needs to be corrected. So one of the suggestions we make is to look at your debt. If you do have credit card debt or student loan debt, build a plan. You're not going to pay it off instantaneously, but have a plan to chip away at it little by little. Start saving in a um, money market or a bank account to get an emergency fund. 
get something to fall back on because, again, it's all on your shoulders. And take a hard look at your career. It's never too early to think about what can I do to earn more? Can I get more skills? Can I ask for a promotion or a raise? Can I change what I'm doing in my company to earn more? I'm always reminded when we talk about women in their 20s about a story that I read in New York Magazine about 26-year-olds who rolled off the parents' health plan and didn't replace it, who just decided, I'm young, nothing's going to happen to me, I'm not getting health insurance. And as we have this conversation, I'm going to lean pretty hard on these protections because I think that's the area where single women are the most different, that we don't have another income to fall back on. And so we need that emergency fund. We need that health insurance. We're going to need disability insurance, and we're going to have to figure out a way to get it. Do you see that in the people that you work with and the people that you interviewed for this book? We absolutely see that that is an area that is sometimes neglected. You know, there doesn't seem to be enough dollars left over at the end of the month to take care of some of these protections, but they are essential. Exactly as you said, if you're living on your own income and you become ill or injured, you know, your income stops. What happens? So disability insurance is key and health insurance is key. And as more and more women try their hand at being entrepreneurs, they have to supply those protections on their own and not rely on an employer to provide them. Absolutely key. Build that safety net. What about the start of an investing plan, a retirement plan? Where does that fit in on the priority list for somebody in their 20s? And as we move into your early 30s, where money perhaps is still tight, how do you make the hard choices that allow you to start dipping a toe in those waters? Yeah. And I think that's the challenge of trying to build financial security is you cannot take one goal and address it and put everything else on the back burner. You have to address your goals simultaneously. And therefore, it means having money to pay off some of your debt, but also investing in a retirement plan, a Roth IRA, even if it's just $10 a month, $15 a month, get started. Because as we know, you start that snowball down the hill, it's going to grow much faster. So I think that addressing various parts of your financial plan, building the emergency fund, paying down debt, and starting to save or invest all need to be addressed simultaneously, even if it's a small amount toward each goal. Yeah, because then you can see progress happening in all of those areas. As we age, as we get into our 30s, 40s, what other priorities start to show up? What are the things that we have to make sure that we take care of? And once you're in your 30s and even to 40s, certainly look at home ownership as a way to solidify your financial situation. You know, inflation is certainly in the news now, but anybody who has a 30-year fixed mortgage, at least their mortgage payment is staying the same, is not affected by inflation. So that's a boon in inflationary times. And there is evidence that single women actually buy homes at a faster pace than single men, for example. They've recognized that that is a way to build financial security. So increasing the amount that you're putting into your retirement accounts, um, perhaps buying a home, making sure that safety net is keeps up with your income are all important in your 30s and 40s. 
I want to come back to home ownership in a second because I do think it's incredibly important to women. I've shared my story on this podcast many times, but I was divorced when I turned 40. I'm remarried since, but I was dead set on buying a home. I probably should have rented. It was 2005. Real estate values were at their height. I paid more on my street than anybody else had paid for a smaller house. It was not a wise financial move, and I should make wise financial moves. But for me, you know, this was emotional, and it felt safe, and it felt secure. Do you hear that from the women in your practice? And how do you advise them knowing that it's an emotional component? Yeah, absolutely. It is emotional. It feels exactly like you are exerting control over a part of your life. And that's extremely important. We talk about the emotions of it, but my job is to crunch the numbers for them. So I show them how much they can afford realistically, what it's going to cost them. They need to solidify their emergency fund because as a homeowner, you don't know what's going to come your way with repairs and other issues. So if the numbers work, then we go forward. But I'm pretty hard-headed about the numbers. When does homeownership not work? When is it better to rent? I think in some areas of the country, and and, you know, Manhattan may be one, it's very difficult to buy a home at a price that you can afford that is livable. So there are certain circumstances where it just may not be affordable. Also, if you are not sure you're staying in the area, you may be moving away then, or your situation may change, then homeownership is not a good idea. It's not an easy thing to get in and out of. Yeah, I don't think people should buy if they don't think they're going to be there for at least five years. That's my general rule of thumb. But I do think right now we have this opportunity with the world having gone remote to perhaps think of picking up and moving to a place where you can lower your housing costs, the housing costs that represent such a big share of the budget of single women. And then with one move, you change your whole life, but you change your whole financial life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think also single women are looking more at living in communities where they can feel part of a community that maybe is walkable, that is maybe not overwhelming to them. And I agree. I think there's a lot more options to make your life better than having to move for a job. Let's continue on our progression through the ages. You get through your 40s into your 50s. I know so many people in general, but also, you know, single people who say, well, I don't need a will. I have no dependence. Why do I need a will? Do I need a will if I'm a single woman? Yeah, absolutely. You need a will. You need a will, but you also need a power of attorney. You need estate planning documents that actually will help you while you're still alive. So you need to find someone you can trust who could step in and manage your affairs if you're not able to do so. You may even, in some states, it may make sense to have a trust so that you can put your investments in trust that can be managed by someone else. You have to think about someone who can make healthcare decisions for you if you're unable to do so, a healthcare power of attorney, advanced directives. When there's a couple involved, it's assumed that the spouse can come in and make some of these decisions for you. But if you're single, there's no assumption. Nobody can, a friend can't just step in, a relative can't just step in. You have to name the person you want to make decisions for you. So very important to have those documents. 
at what age do you suggest people start looking at them? How much do we have to have accumulated in terms of assets for this to start to make sense? I actually think that the basic four documents, the will, the power of attorney, and the two healthcare documents at adulthood, (laughs) in your 30s, you really have to get those in place. Then when you're in your 40s and 50s, you know, certainly revisit those from time to time. Your goals may change, your friendships may change, your situation may change. But those are documents that should be in place fairly early. When you get into your 60s and you're starting to look toward retirement, there's a big social security decision to be made, and you alluded to that. But there's also this concept that we're talking about more of guaranteed lifetime income, of taking some of the money that you've saved for retirement and converting it, perhaps using an annuity, the sort of annuities that are now starting to show up in 401k plans, so that you know that you'll have a paycheck for the rest of your life. Does this make sense? I think it can make sense for some women. It doesn't make it's not a one size fits all solution, but for a woman who maybe has a certain amount of assets and knows that she will be getting social security and would like to have a stream of income that covers the remaining expenses, day-to-day expenses, and then reserves the rest of her investments for growth and for other kinds of expenditures. It can make sense. It's important, though, to shop around these single premium immediate annuities, as they're often called, where you turn over a chunk of money to an insurance company in exchange for a monthly income for the rest of your life can make sense. But make sure that you have gotten several quotes because different companies pay different amounts and that you understand the rules, meaning you can't change your mind once you've bought one of these. This is in stone. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think it's important to understand with interest rates so low, annuitization right now is pretty expensive. And as we enter this rising interest rate environment, you're going to get a better deal and you get a better deal as you age. So keeping those factors in mind, I like the idea if you're thinking about annuitizing of doing it in chunks over time, kind of like you would build a bond ladder. Long-term care insurance the last of the things on the list that I think is so important for singles, right? Because there is nobody, I mean, maybe there are, and we'll talk about kids in a moment, but if you don't have dependents and you don't have a partner, you've got to provide for your own long-term care. Absolutely. And long-term care insurance, I have found, is a very difficult conversation to have because it's extremely expensive and rates have continued to go, uh, premiums have continued to increase. Doubling premiums is not uncommon these days. So something that you thought was affordable now becomes unaffordable. And yet there's a high probability that you are going to need some kind of care in the future. So you're kind of stuck in this catch-22. I may need it, but I really can't afford it. So again, it's shopping around, seeing what you can afford. There are some hybrid annuities hooked up with long-term care insurance that are becoming a little more interesting. Still early days for that. But I would absolutely sit down with someone who can give you objective advice on how much it's going to cost you, what kind of benefits you can expect, and see if that builds into your budget. Our rule of thumb is we advise clients not to spend more than about 5% of their annual budget on long-term care insurance. That is a 
fabulous rule of thumb. It is something I have never heard before, and I talk about this subject all the time, so I am so happy to have it, and I will eagerly borrow from it. I bought a hybrid life insurance long-term care policy. It's a whole life policy, or actually I think it's a universal life policy that has a bucket of benefits that can be drawn upon for long-term care if I need it. But you're right, these policies are getting more and more expensive. And I think one thing to just keep in mind is that you don't have to cover the entire need or the entire outlay. It's okay to insure for a part of the money that you think that you might need. And that can take the pressure off just a little bit. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. I'm talking with Jill Gianola, author of Single Women and Money. All right, kids, the wild card, right? So as you put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard for this book... What were the big differences in the advice that you gave women with kids and women without? Single women with kids are facing even greater obstacles. And the biggest obstacle is childcare. It's become so expensive. $1,500 a month for one child is not uncommon. And in order to earn enough to pay for the childcare and still make progress on your own goals has become increasingly difficult. And then they talk about saving for college. You have to build a more secure safety net because if something happened to you, you have minor children who are suddenly without an income. So life insurance is key. And it should be, in my opinion, term insurance. Get as much as you can afford cheaply because this isn't going to be necessarily a lifelong need. You just need to get a big chunk now. So it is trying to keep your eye on the long term for yourself and still provide for your children now is extremely challenging. And this is where society could do a whole heck of a better job helping single women with better subsidies or help with childcare. You know, this great resignation where so many women left the marketplace and left their jobs, single women really didn't have that option. 
who's going to provide for them and their children if they decide that trying to work from home with a child is not working for them? It has to work for them. Yeah, 100%. I want to go back to the topic of investing. We touched on it and as it relates to 401ks, but I did a lot of research for my book, Women With Money, and learned that when it comes to what women want from our money, and this is based on hundreds of interviews, safety and security is the top of the list. 100%, right? Safety and security, it manifests in a lot of different ways. For me, it was that house that I would buy rather than rent. But I heard women talk about safe cars, not just cars, but safe cars and cash in the bank. And the problem with cash in the bank is that it's not earning you any money. We know statistically women keep a lot more cash in the bank than men do. We keep about 70% of our assets in cash. There was a story just recently in the Wall Street Journal that these trends have been exacerbated in COVID, that we're hoarding cash. We're not feeling confident to put our money to work. And our sponsor, Fidelity, has done a lot of research on this and really isolated the lack of confidence that women feel. How do we get beyond it? I think the conversation that I have with my clients about this is the fact that what they perceive as helping their security or making them more secure actually is illusory. It doesn't make them more secure by having 70% of their assets in cash. It is actually a risk to keep that much in cash because you need growth. You need to build that nest egg. And so we talk in terms of what really is safe. You need an emergency fund. You need money that's safe that you know you're going to need in the next five years. But beyond that, safety means growing your nest egg so that it will be there. And we talk in terms of examples like planting an apple orchard. And we need to plant those trees to give you apples in the future. They're not going to give apples every single season. But in the future, you need to have something that's going to grow for you so that you can continue to eat. I mean, that's the level that we talk at. Absolutely. As we wrap this up, Jill, what are your best words of encouragement to all the single ladies out there listening? I mean, you've been there yourself. You've done this. What action step would you tell them to take right now? Well, first, I would say you can do this. (laughs) You really can. And the first step I would do is to make sure you understand your cash flow what's going in, what's coming out, and make sure that you're spending in a way that enhances your quality of life, that enhances what you like to do, but make sure you understand what the possibilities are for increasing your inflow and maybe managing your outflow a little bit better. That's the starting point. Jill Gianola, the book is Single Women and Money. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. We are back with Catherine Tuggle and your mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I really loved this episode. I am so glad we finally gave the single ladies the shout out that they so richly deserve. You know, I was thinking back to my early days on the Today Show. I did 
a three-part series on today based on a story that I had written for Smart Money Magazine about singles and money and about how different singles and money are. And many of the things that we talked about then still hold true today. I mean, particularly all of those protections, all of those protections early in life, midlife, later in life, when you yourself are the only person to rely on, insurance and friends, but also insurance becomes really, really important. It's so true. And just hearing Jill talk about the need for a will, that is something that I never had when I was single and I should have. We all should have. I didn't have any money when I was single, but you know, as soon as you have money that you care about, assets that you care about, belongings that you care about, you should have a will. It's not hard. It's not expensive. There's no reason not to. Yeah, totally. I mean, even when I was single in one of my first jobs, I think I was making $40,000 and I read in the fine print of my employee handbook that if I died, that a year of my salary would be paid to whatever beneficiary of my choosing. And I chose a cousin of mine in Alabama. And I remember thinking, wow, she's going to be so sad if I die. And then she's going to be like, ooh, my college education is paid for. It's going to be great. (laughs) But, you know, it's important. Like, you have more assets than you think you have. You do. And you just made another really important point, and I'm not even sure if you realized it. But beneficiary designations typically override anything that's in your will. So those insurance beneficiaries, the beneficiaries on your retirement accounts, whether you're single or not, if it's been a while, like a couple of years since you took a look at them, since you updated them, particularly if you experienced any sort of a change in life, married, divorce, birth of a child, you really have to take a look again. Yeah, you definitely don't want someone that you're no longer with or someone who you don't particularly like anymore to end up with your assets. Yeah, it happens so much in divorces. And it happens too, you know, when you lose a spouse. So just take a look. Definitely. Take a minute, update it. I just did this. I just went through this with my estate planning attorney. And the trigger for me was moving to a new state because new states have new forms. So I just went through everything again. And I changed my mind on some stuff. Nobody in my immediate family should be frightened, but you know, and it's my prerogative to change my mind. So there we go. Definitely. Well, as long as you're now leaving me everything, then I'm totally fine with it. They didn't need to know that. (laughs) Beautiful. All right, let's answer some questions. Our first note today comes to us from Jennifer. She writes, Jean, thank you for sharing your knowledge. I genuinely look forward to your podcast, and I have learned so much from listening to you. I always enjoy mailbag, but I never thought I would write in myself, even though I have a burning question. I decided to give it a shot, and I hope to hear your opinion. I'm 45, married, and I have a 15-year-old stepdaughter. I'm the breadwinner of the household, and our expenses are $8,000 a month, including luxury items like travel, entertainment, gifts, and charity donations, and also irregular expenses like replacing an appliance. I have $800,000 in retirement funds, a very modest cash savings, long-term care insurance, and I inherited my home when my parents passed away when I was young. I don't have any debt, although I do expect to have to remodel the house at some point in the future. My dream is to retire at 55. 
I want to continue to travel, but I could pare down other expenses like entertainment and gifts if I need to. My husband would like for me to retire early, and he can provide medical insurance through his job until I'm 65 or possibly older. However, because my husband makes significantly less money than I do, I think I'll need to have a sizable cash savings in order to bridge me from 55 until I'm able to pull from my retirement accounts. I'm not sure how much I'll need to save in cash or if saving enough is actually a realistic goal for me. I'm also not sure how stopping working and thus stopping my retirement account contributions from me and my employer would affect my retirement funds when I reach 65. Do you have any thoughts on how I should handle this or how I should be thinking about this? Thank you. Jennifer, I so relate. I am significantly older than you. I'm 57 at this point, but I've been having this conversation with my husband who would like for me to retire earlier than I want to retire in order to spend more time with him. I totally understand the push and pull of this situation. And I think you get a whole lot of credit because you're asking all the right questions. You're not just looking at how much less you'll have in those retirement accounts, but what you'll have to do to get from 55 to 65. And I want to throw a couple of additional questions on the list before I tell you what I think you should do. I mean, one of the worries in a situation like this is what happens if your husband were to lose his job? What would the situation look like then? I know that you said he could provide you medical insurance through his job until you're 65 or older, but one of the things that we've seen through the recession is that a lot of people are being retired unexpectedly. It's being sort of thrust upon them rather than them choosing it for themselves. I also think you need to look at Social Security and what stopping work at age 55 would do to the money that you will eventually receive or are expecting to eventually receive from Social Security because Social Security is based on your 35 highest earning years and those typically come later in life. So those are two important questions that I think you need to consider. And you need to do some serious financial modeling before you take a leap like this. I'm glad that it's 10 years in the future, that your stepdaughter will be through college at that point in all likelihood. But sitting down now with a financial advisor who can look at all of the moving pieces here and basically project it out for you is a real value. They'll be able to look at things using the software that they have, like the cost of that home renovation, when it's going to hit, where the money's going to come from, what that will do to your overall budget and ability to save. They'll look at how fast your assets have to grow in order for you to achieve your goals. They'll look at what happens if you shrink your budget um, in real time, cutting down on the other expenses like entertainment and gifts. And they'll be able to give you a real tactical, tangible picture that off the top of my head, I just can't give you. I also think that maybe 
you will want to continue some sort of an income stream at that point. I don't know what that might be. I don't know if it involves work or it involves passive income, but those are the sorts of considerations that a planner can help you determine what the need is likely to be. Unfortunately, what I don't have is a series of of benchmarks that say, if you want to stop work 10 years early, this is how much you need to save for retirement. What we know is that if you've put away 10 times your income for retirement, by the time you retire, that should get you a replacement rate of your current income of about 80-ish percent when combined with Social Security, which at 55, by the way, you won't be old enough to take, that will last you for 30 years. But those numbers don't work in this case. So find yourself a financial advisor. You can certainly go to our website, click the find an advisor button, will help lead you in the right direction. And if you don't find a person that you like through those channels, the Financial Planning Association and the National Association for Personal Financial Advisors are both recommended sources of mine. Let us know what happens. Yeah, let us know. And you made a great point, Jean, about her continuing to do something for money. I mean, 55 is so young. And I'm wondering if you have a hobby, maybe you can turn that hobby into an income stream. I think that you're going to want to do something, particularly given as long as people are living now. And I think if you do something, it might as well be for money. And that can be your fun money, right? Like it doesn't have to be essential money to your budget, but 55 is young. Yeah. No, it's really young. And it doesn't mean working as many hours as you're working now either, right? That's something to keep in mind. Yep. Our next note comes to us from a member of our Private Harmony Facebook group. She writes, it's holiday bonus time. I don't get one, but my spouse does, and it's more than my annual salary. Now, how to use it wisely. We plan to pay off the last of our student loans, set aside funds for taxes for a Roth conversion, max out my Roth IRA, and we'll still have $9,000 left. So where should that $9,000 go? Option A, series I bonds. I've never bought any, but this seems like a good option. But how are they looked at when it comes to student aid? We have a high school sophomore. Option B, high yield savings. We have an emergency fund as well as other savings goals. Option C, boost our 529 plans. Our kids are seven, seven, 11, and 15. We live in a state that doesn't have any tax advantages to 529s. Right now, we're in our early 30s and are hitting the benchmarks for our retirement savings. After the student loan is paid off, we will be debt-free except for our mortgage. And I always pay extra on the mortgage so that we will have it paid off before retirement. Thank you. Thanks so much for the question. What a fun situation to have, right? $9,000 left over. What do we do with it? They're all good options by the way. They're all really good options. I would probably lean to option B if your emergency fund isn't fully fleshed out. You didn't quite make that clear, so I'm not sure. If your emergency fund is fully fleshed out, then you can take that one off the table. Series I bonds are attractive right now because they are paying a guaranteed 7.2% return. And if you've been keeping up with them, these are basically 
bonds that are designed to keep up with inflation. They're treasury bonds. You buy them through Treasury Direct, and they pay this guaranteed return that it is really, really hard to get anywhere else. As far as the 529 plans, that money will be invested in the markets based on generally the glide path of your children. So most of the portfolios in 529s are invested in a mix of stocks and bonds based on the ages of your kids. The closer your kids are to college, the less risky the portfolio, the further the kids are away from college, the more risky the portfolio. So my guess is if you invested in option C, if you boosted the 529 plans for that 15-year-old, you're not going to beat the return that you get in Series I bonds. For the seven-year-old's twins, I'm guessing, then you very well might. It's really a matter of personal preference at this point. If you're feeling like you don't have as much as you'd like in those college accounts, then put the money into the college accounts. And if you're feeling like you've got sufficient money in the college accounts, go ahead and try the I-bonds. They are considered assets of yours, so they will count on the financial aid form. I don't think you can go wrong with any of the options. I am curious about your other savings goals. You're doing so well that I'm wondering how long it's been since you and the kids hopped in the station wagon and took a road trip or did something fun. We've all come through a couple of really difficult years. And so if you decided that you wanted to have some fun with this money, I for one would definitely not blame you. Amazing advice as always, Jean. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. In today's Thrive, things we can do now to combat climate change and save money. Climate change feels impossibly big. It feels overwhelming as extreme weather events just increase and water shortages continue to hit our communities. And these days, it's really easy to feel helpless about what you can do to make a difference. But Focusing on hope and small actions rather than giving in to doom scrolling is more effective not only for your own mental health, but when it comes to influencing others to act. Yeah, individual solutions may be small, but they promote momentum from the bottom up. And in many cases, the changes that you make can save you money sometimes a lot of it. At hermoney.com, we've got a rundown on 10 things you can do to help the planet, your health, and your budget. Here are a few favorites. For starters, eat what you buy. Sounds simple, sounds obvious, but every year, nearly 40% of food goes to waste in the U.S., and food is the number one contributor to landfills, sending methane into the atmosphere as it rots. Meal prep can be your best friend in avoiding waste and saving money. It's a tiny action, but do you do it regularly? Next, buy less, repair, and reuse. We've long known that fast fashion brands are bad for the environment, but this year, take a step back and really think about how you could buy less and save more. Two to three investment pieces will cost you far less than those impulse buys every time you pass your favorite fashion stores and say that three times fast. Also, 
We love the proliferation of buy nothing groups and Facebook marketplace being used to swap or sell unwanted items. If you haven't already tapped into those sources, give it a shot. Lastly, really truly try to minimize returns. Yeah, they're mostly free and typically very easy these days, but keep in mind, Every time you return something, there's a good chance it'll wind up in a landfill. In many cases, the cost to restock and repackage items to get them ready to sell to the next person just isn't worth it to the company. You can do your part by looking to buy only what you need. And don't be afraid to head to the store to try something on if you're considering a clothing purchase. Yeah, I know it sounds really 1999, but just because we stepped out of dressing rooms for a couple of years doesn't mean we can't step right back in and have a little fun while we're at it. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jill for all of her insight. We love our single listeners. We hear you. We appreciate you. And we are always here to help tackle your questions. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show. Please leave us a review. Leave us a five-star review. We love hearing what you think, especially when it's positive. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Fidelity and VCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.